Working Cows Podcast, Episode 176. Welcome to the podcast that gives producers a platform to discuss and share paradigm-challenging practices. Practices that have increased the effectiveness of their operation and the joy that their families have received from this lifestyle. Howdy, everybody. This is Clay Connery, host of the Working Cows podcast, here with another episode for you, powered by the Global Ag Network. Really excited to be joined today by David Kleinschmidt. David is a consultant with Understanding Ag, uh, the soil health company, puts on the Soil Health Academy and a number of other programs. Um, really encourage you to look into that as an option. Uh, David joined me today is joining me today to talk about uh, a different perspective on the issue of Liebig's barrel. And so uh, we're going to talk about some of the different ways that things uh, are connected and related and different ways to think about the different relationships uh, between uh, different macro and micronutrients within the soil. So uh, really excited for this conversation with David. David, thanks for joining me today on the Working Cows podcast. Welcome back. Thanks, Clay. It's great to be back. Well, I had Peter Ballerstedt on the other day, and we talked about Liebig's barrel and uh, his uh, kind of idea that you know, no matter how good a system is, it's never best than it's it's never better than it's uh, kind of shortest stave, whether whatever that might be. Um, and you had responded to that on Facebook, and and uh, I wanted to get some more perspective. I'm always always welcome. Uh, more perspective uh, on those on those things, and so I guess, um, how have in your mind and your understanding, how has uh, Libig's barrel been uh, maybe misused in some contexts? Specifically, when I think of Liebig's barrel, uh, being I used to work in the ag- retail world and talked a lot about the Liebig's barrel on the uh, the fertility and nutrient management side, that's what my mind goes to at first, you know, and and after listening to the Peter's podcast with you, uh, you know, there's a lot of really good information that he spoke about as well, you know, with especially whether it's a, a supply chain or within your operation of, you know, it could be in a genetics or whatever. And we, the, your, uh, the chain is only as strong as its weakest link. And I completely agree with that. Uh, when I look at it as a form of, uh, nutrient management, you know, there's a couple uh, other laws that need to actually actually be considered in this as well. And one of them is the law of the maximum. And so basically that's stating that um, if you've got an excess of something in your soils, and if that plant is taking up too much of that, it could actually cause uh, or downregulate a different nutrient from being taken up. So in a tissue sample, it might show that you're deficient in something, but it could be because of an excess of another thing in that plant. That's another way to kind of look at things and to understand, you know, I look at what's called a Boulder's chart, uh, which is looking at nutrient synergisms and antagonisms uh, between each other to see, you know, what, what nutrients might be tying up another nutrient from being taken up into that plant. What implement, implications could that have 
in terms of plant health or whatever. But there is another one, another law that is very seldom talked about, and that's the, uh, the law of return. And so basically, Liebig's law was developed because previous to the Liebig's law, scientists and chemists were under the impression that, you know, the humus was what plants were taking up nutrients from. And then they discovered, well, humus isn't water soluble, so plants couldn't be taking this humus up. So that was just debunked. And Liebig came out with the law of the minimum, and it just made complete sense as a chemical system. Basically, they were saying, you know, uh, soil organic matter really doesn't matter in this whole system with the humus and everything. It's all about the chemistry. And in the, in the agronomy retail world of fertilizer, or, or when we're looking at soils, it's basically a chemistry set and without taking into consideration the biology that's in the soils and what value it has. You know, that organic matter is where the microbes all reside. And, you know, that's basically their house. And so if we got this humus layer in the soil profile, um, that's where those microbes are. Those microbes are breaking down. They've got this interaction between the plants, the plant roots. Um, Plants are feeding out this rich uh, sugary exudates out of the root system. that's feeding these microbes, these bacteria, the fungi, the protozoa, these nematodes uh, that are inside that, that humus area around the root uh, rhizosphere. Uh, it's feeding out those in exchange for nutrients. You know, the, the mycorrhizae fungi actually live inside that root cell with the hyphae extending out into the, the soil system that's responsible for bringing in the majority of not penetrating through 300 psi compaction but yet the mycorrhizae fungi can penetrate through 1100 pounds of compaction hmm. so they're much more efficient about getting out through the soil profile connecting different plants to each other exchanging different nutrients with other plants bringing in the majority of those nutrients back into that plant system and quite frankly if the plant has enough soluble fertilizer there from what we apply the plant does not allow that uh, mycorrhizae fungi to colonize within its root cells and so when this happens uh, we're not able to build those those stable aggregates within our soils as well so now we're not feeding those microbes in that that humus layer we 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 turn that humus from being a kind of almost it should feel really light crumbly and, and almost if we can en- envision what a cloud might feel like in our hand mm. it should almost feel like that sure but for most of the soils that we look at they're they're relatively hard they're, they're the bulk density on them is pretty high because i mean we've just been treating our soils such as a chemical system right yeah absolutely um you know we look at it as something that we can just continue to prop up with inputs and so i guess that kind of leads to my next question and we'll circle back around to some of these laws that you've mentioned um but and i and i guess a lot of my job here at the working cows podcast is to ask the dumb questions and uh i'm sure somebody's going to slap their forehead when i say this but uh in your in your mind is there a time when a chemical input is warranted yeah i mean throughout this whole you know 
if you want to call it regenerative ag movement or soil health movement or whatever, we need to realize that, you know, we're not organic, we're organic-ish. So if there is a need for an input, let's apply it. But, you know, in terms of, you know, especially on, on rangeland or pasture land scenarios, maybe it's more of how we manage the herd on those environments to not have to apply those, those inputs. You know, if we think about what the cow's taking in and 80% of it comes back out the backside and is relatively plant available, uh, we've got, you know, all kinds of critters in the soil between bacteria, fungi, earthworms, dung beetles and things that help break down uh, and mineralize out those uh, manures and make it plant available again. We might not have to apply so much, you know, and it, it goes back to looking at uh, stock density um, and how how much uh, animal impact we have on that land, but also how much rest we give it as well, which is really going to depend on what environment we're in, you know, how dry the environment or, or uh, how much moisture we, we, we receive as well. Uh, looking at the row crop land side of things, you know, the biggest things that are missing on a lot of row crop acres is quite frankly, a diverse rotation. Mm. Uh, even just corn soybean isn't enough, even with cover crop in between. Yeah, we can advance our soils, but maybe not to the extent as if it was maybe a corn soybean wheat with the cover crops in between bring back in the livestock is probably the biggest sector that, that I think that we miss as a whole. Uh, you know, heck, I'm driving back from Pensacola right now, back into Illinois, and I just drive past hundreds and hundreds of acres that, you know, is corn, soybeans, maybe cotton, whatever. There, there's no fence around any fields anymore. Mm-hmm. And we've taken them all out, you know. Um, and it's that, that growing of the biomass and laying it back down or, or that residue and keeping that that soil covered with residues that helps build that fungal component of that soil, which in turn builds that humus layer even even greater. You know that's how we increase our. Really, uh, we look at like gated brown soils, you know, in North Dakota, and look at the the concentration of nutrients in his soils compared to some of his neighbors, just by the way he is managing his ecosystems, his uh, his herd, his forages, and everything, he's been able to increase, you know, the organic matter, but also the the nutrient availability in those soils exponentially. So I guess just to drill down a little bit more on that, is it, is, is a chemical input um, kind of a, a bandaid in case like break glass in case of emergency, I'm going to go broke if I don't get this much production off of this place this year. And then hopefully in the, in the years to come, we can wean off of those things. Or is there, is there some, are there sometimes when, uh, you know, nutrients are so bound up, not bioavailable that we need to kind of get, get some of that, get some of that more bio bioavailable. And then, uh, again, go forward, hopefully, weaning off of weaning off of some of those chemical inputs yeah um i go back to it's kind of like uh you know within the soil health academy we talk about this fist acronym the frequency intensity scale and time of what whatever we do um 
you know, we can build a lot of vegetative growth with nitrogen fertilizer. But if we apply too much nitrogen, uh, especially, you know, once it converts and gets into that nitrate form, that's usually a vector where we see a lot of weeds propagate. Mm. So we got to be really care- careful about what we do, how much we do it. You know, are we doing it across all the acres or just some of the acres? Mm. Uh, and, and maybe we need to actually look a little deeper uh, and say, you know, if I've got a poor stand here, Maybe we need to dig a little and learn a lot instead of just taking a small core and sending it off to the lab. Mm. Uh, we need to look and say, you know, what's going on in our soil profile? Take a penetrometer out there, push it in, see where, you know, not only is where our 300 pound compaction layer is, but where that 200 pound layer is. If we think about soils, it's, uh, you know, about 25% airspace, 25% water which those two are interchangeable with each other. And then we got 45% mineral, um, your sand, silts, clays, and 5% organic matter. Well, that pentrometer at 200 PSI is going to tell us basically how deep of pore space do we have in that soil profile. And that's going to tell us how much microbial activity or how, how big is our house in that soil profile. So that's maybe a good thing to look at. But if our grasses are thin there, you know, maybe more than anything, just, you know, looking at a practice of like a bell grazing or rolling out hay onto those areas, grazing on it to, you know, increase the seed out there, putting out more, you know, nutrients that you can buy in a bale and put back out there and just let it grow maybe for a year before you come back into those areas. You know, if you've got the acres to be able to justify that, that's uh, one way to look at it. You know. Another way to look at things, too, is uh, I started uh, pulling these soil cores at 12-inch depths and looking at a total nutrient digestion test. Um, Regen Ag Labs up in Nebraska, they run, and it's looking at the organic and inorganic pools of soil fertilizer, uh, basically, or the soil nutrients in that soil profile, and it's mind-blowing. You know, a standard soil test might come back and say, well, you've only got 40 pounds of phosphorus, maybe 180 pounds of potassium in there, maybe only 20 pounds of nitrogen. But when we look at this test, it's telling us we might have 2,000 pounds of nitrogen, maybe 400 pounds of phosphorus and and 6,000 pounds of potassium. So then I look at, well, if I take a biomass sample of that crop residue, whether it's a forage or cover crop or cash crop or whatever and send it off to a lab to analyze what all nutrients are in there i might have three times as much nutrients in that biomass than what is uh what my soil tests actually say is available so then i question okay which test is actually right here you know uh and i go to kind of well the biomass is probably more accurate than what the standard chemistry soil test is. And then this cell nutrient digestion test is pretty accurate, uh, you know, of, of what pools are there. And we just have to understand that this is a very, very, very complex biochemistry, uh, biochemical, physical system, uh, physics system that we really don't know what's going on in there. But if we feed it the right things, if we do the right things, 
we can build the right things and make these things cycle, these nutrients cycle back out uh, and, and be available to the next cash crop or next, you know, regrowth of the forage as well. So, yeah, that's kind of a long-winded uh, explanation. But, you know, if there's a need to apply something, yes, we can apply some things, but let's be cautious of what we're doing. Let's ask ourselves, anytime that we do a, a practice, let's always ask ourselves why and have a really deep understanding of why we do something before we actually go and do it. I think it's a, a fear and trembling issue uh, because there is so much that is under, that is not understood about what's going on there. And so there are always going to be unintended consequences uh, of every action. There's always going to be positive and negative unintended consequences, or uh, I would say probably both. But in, in any case, uh, so we've talked about, yeah, maybe there is a situation uh that we're, we're going to use a chemical input, but what are some of the alternatives maybe to try first? What, what are some of the things that we could try first, uh, before we jump off into that? Uh, and, and since this is, is the working cows podcast, we'll, we'll try to focus on some, some, uh, livestock integration and, and ways to get the most bang for our buck out of that livestock integration. If you, if you can. Yeah. And obviously that's, kind of where I was thinking we need to go to is like, we need to understand maybe how our management skills of those, those animals uh, with the lay of the land and everything uh, impacts what we see in, in terms of either weeds or what we might perceive as weeds and what the cattle or, or livestock are actually foraging on and consuming. Uh, you know, Greg Judy uses a term Columbus grazing. And, and I kind of love that, that term. <laughs> Uh, just kick them out in, in the springtime and then go find them again in, in the uh, fall time unless they get out into the neighbor's field or whatever. But, uh, you know, if, if that's our way of managing livestock, we're basically letting them go to the buffet and pick out whatever they want. And so if we take a bus load of, you know, third graders, fourth graders to a buffet and we just <laughs> pay for the meal and we don't give them any guidance on what what to eat they're probably going to go after the pizza and the ice cream me, me personally i'll go after the ice cream first i have no self-control <laughs> but that's the way our livestock are too they're going to find something that they like and they're going to hammer it all the way down to the ground and then they're going to go around until they find something else that they like and they're going to eat on it for a bit they're going to come back to that area once it's regrown and they're going to hammer it back down. You know, they're, they're, they're eating more than that 50%, which is sloughing off a lot of roots, you know, 60 plus percent of the root growth, which is in uh, creating our own droughts, if you will, because we get into dry periods, we don't have those deep roots. And as that plant is trying to regrow vegetatively, it doesn't have the root system below it to support that vegetative growth either so we kind of have to understand too you know what actually comes out of the backside of that cow how do we manage or that sheep or whatever how do how do we manage our grazing systems so that we can get the biggest impact from that animal well some of it comes from you know the, the just the, the sheer amount of microbes that an animal sheds just from a grazing activity 
every time a cow bites, she wraps her tongue around that leaf and takes a tug of it. There she's, she's losing microbes right out of her, out of her mouth through saliva. As she's walking through the forage, you know, there's microbes on her, on her body that are shedding off onto the forages and, and onto the ground. And then same comes when excretes from the back end of her too. So there's three forms right there that she's, she's uh, increasing the amount of microbes on that soil ecosystem. If we manage how they graze, basically, or if we're uh, either doing like an adaptive baldic paddock grazing, holistic grazing management type um, type of system, uh, and we're not allowing the cows to be selective, and we're moving them on a regular basis, you know, daily is great. A couple times a day is even better. Sometimes it doesn't fit into a person's schedule, and, and maybe once every three or four days we can still improve that ecosystem because if we combine the cattle all into one herd and move them across the landscape, instead of having eight different herds spread across the country that we're trying to manage, we inevitably give, you know, longer rest periods to that grass. Plus we're increasing our stock density. So our goal would be to hopefully have a manure pad about every square yard which if we're moving them once a, once a day and we come through an area maybe once, twice a year, we can achieve that in one year. But if we're just do that Columbus grazing, it might take 27 years to get one manure pat in a, in a, in a square yard there mm. around each other. And so if we think about what's in a manure pat, in a cow pie, we're looking at like 0.2 nitrogen, 0.15 pounds of potassium. Now that might not sound like much, but if we add up how often a cow might manure out on a on landscape and multiply that by however many head we have there, that's a considerable amount. Mm-hmm. And in a lot of these Columbus grazing systems, you can go out there, you know, I, I kind of laugh about my area in, in, area in Illinois where a lot of Columbus grazing has been done, and they like to graze the fescue down to just an inch or less and take it all. And then you see these pockets that are, you know, throughout the, the field, it's got these larger tufts of grass there from a, a manure pad or from where a cow had urinated or whatever. And, you know, they're probably going to graze those areas the next year or maybe, you know, the year after or whatever. It just depends on how rapidly that manure breaks down. But if we could do that across the whole landscape, you know, get them closer together. You have longer rest periods. Now we've increased our forage availability and how much forage we have there. And now we don't need to be thinking about how much we need to go out and buy fertilizer uh, and pay somebody else. We can we can kind of keep a little bit more of that money in our back pocket. Yeah, and I in and I guess with with that Columbus style grazing, uh, they're probably going to hit the same places year after year. Um, you know, they're not going to get out into the corners. They're not going to get out into the rougher parts of the, of the paddock and, and, and get those things all the whole paddock grazed evenly every year. And that's going to compound the issues of, uh, not getting manure spread out to those more neglected areas year after year. And I think that another thing, you know, that we've been talking about what's coming out of the cow front and back saliva, manure, urine, that doesn't. I don't think that even takes into account the fact that there's uh, there is 
tons of tons of nitrogen, literally tons of nitrogen and other things in in the air above that acre or above that square yard. That if we get the if, if we get that soil opened up and if we get that soil aggregated, that that airflow, uh, that carbon sequestration pump gets to gets to work in as well. Yeah, absolutely. I mean, if you think about nitrogen in the atmosphere, there's you know uh, thirty seven thousand tons worth roughly above every acre now that's a pretty strong uh you know triple bonded nitrogen that it's really hard to break that's why you know uh, it's very energy intensive you know there's there's microbes in the soil either through rhizobia bacteria that that, live with inside the nodules of legumes that can break this bond Uh, but it takes a lot of a lot of uh, carbon and phosphorus to be able to do that as well takes a lot of energy uh, and then there's other bacteria that are free living that that make that association with grass species as well that that give that nitrogen to that plant. Uh, but yeah, there's if we actually look at what's in a plant, you know the 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 main elements are carbon, hydrogen, oxygen, and nitrogen. The great thing is is all of those are free. They're all in the air. It's just how we manage them. Right. Yep. So, um, you mentioned a couple of things earlier, um, two or three laws, I think the law of the maximum, the law of the minimum. Was there another one? Um, the law of return law of return. There we go. Uh, okay. So can you talk about how the law of the maximum, uh, differs from the law of the minimum? Yeah. So in the law of the minimum, looking at that stave and saying, you know, uh, whatever our shortest link is or our shortest stave on that barrel, is if we filled it up with with water, all the water is going to flow out of there. And so we've always been really focused on, you know, NP and K being our macros, and then calcium, sulfur, uh, magnesium being kind of secondary, and then zinc, manganese, boron, copper, iron, you know, long list, cobalt of other nutrients that are really those micronutrients. Well, the maximum looks at, you know, if we've got excess of one of those, especially the, the macro nutrients, that we're going to inhibit the uptake of a micronutrient, essentially. And if we uh, inhibit the uptake of a micronutrient, micronutrients aren't needed very much in plants. But the big thing is, is that they are what, they're basically the, uh, the iron workers, if you will you know, the, the plumbers, the pipe fitters and all of that of a, a plant that build all these molecules and tell, um, you know, basically things of where to go. So they influence the uptake of the macronutrients. So, you know, I've seen some, uh, you know, I've started doing what's called a plant sap analysis on row crop acres. And what we're looking at is, you know, cations and anions. We're looking at the chemical balance between these these elements in, the, in a plant. We're looking at uh, older leaf tissue off of the uh, bottom side of the plant versus new young leaf tissue off of the top. Uh, looking at the nutrient flow, seeing that that plant's pulling from its older leaf tissue to support new growth, or if it's actually pulling it up from the root system. And, you know, what we're finding is you know, sometimes we like, especially nitrogen, nitrogen is probably that number one 
uh, element that most people focus on in, in a cropping systems or even a pasture or whatever of, you know, that's going to, that, that provides all my, uh, my vegetative growth. I've got to have plenty of nitrogen out there. I don't want to be limiting because that's going to influence my, my yield big time. Well, we want to have nitrogen to be converted in that plant relatively quickly. We don't want to see, uh, we don't want to see much nitrates. We don't really want to see any ammonium. Ammonium should be converted in the, the root system of that plant. And we want to see it all converted into basically amino acids into that plant uh, or peptides, you know, but, but as uh, more of a, a complex uh, protein, if you will. Mm -hmm. So I've looked at some like SAP tests where uh, another agronomist was looking at it and he said, well, we're short on boron. We need to apply boron. But they didn't pay attention to the nitrates in that plant tissue. And this was on some wheat and they applied nitrate, uh, UAN, liquid nitrogen to that plant or to that field um, like a week prior. So the nitrate levels were really high and it was suppressing uh, or is antagonistic to boron. Mm -hmm. And two weeks later, they went back out, told another sample. They didn't get the boron applied because of rain events. And the boron levels were back adequate to plant. And the nitrate levels were back down to where they should be. A lot of things could convert it out over. And so the farmer was sitting there and he's like, well, they, they were telling me I need to apply boron. I didn't apply any. And look, it's back to where it needs to be. I'm like, yeah, we have to understand these, how these nutrients interact with each other in the plants, but also in the soils as well. And then when they're in the soils, like I said, it's, it's all the biology basically dictates what a plant's going to take up. And so it's very complex. It, it's something that's really hard to understand. Uh, and I don't know if we ever will because it, the soils as a living ecosystem continuously to change. Yeah. So go ahead. Oh, well, I, I just go, you know, in my continuous rambling, it seems like, um, you know, when, when we look at, you know, what makes a plant green, you know, in agriculture, we focus on nitrogen. When we apply nitrogen. We know that it'll turn, turn plants green. And if you look at like a, uh, in the turf world, they know if they apply iron in the correct form, it'll turn plants green. If you look in a horticulture world, they focus on uh, magnesium. Well, they're all they're all correct, but they're all wrong at the same time. So, you know, if we think about what what forms chlorophyll, what makes that that plant green, you've got one nitrogen molecule that's surrounded by four of these magnesium molecules but then you've got this iron in the background that is you're, you're he's basically working with uh you know a pipe wrench and all to build and, and and build all these molecules and put them all together but it's so much more complex than that you've got you know sulfur that's sitting there in the rna synthesizer is telling them you know what to do uh in the messenger rna and telling things where to go you've got molybdenum <laughs> in there that's, you know, helping as an enzyme cofactor to convert this nitrogen uh, into a, a protein and everything else. And it's super complex. 
Yeah, no, it's it's a and that's kind of what I wonder. You know, we're taking tissue samples, we're taking sap samples, we're taking soil samples. Uh, are all of these essentially just a snapshot in time? And so, if we take them and we look at them and we say, "Well, we're short on this, we need to add it um, artificially," uh, maybe there's maybe in a in a in a you know shorter amount of time than we probably think. Maybe those things would be in a different relationship, and our adding of those inputs uh, might not have the in- intended effect. Oh, absolutely! I always like to say, you know, looking at a soil sh- a soil sample is just a snapshot time, and I don't care what soil sample you pull if it's a standard soil test or if it's a Haney soil test or or even the PLFA, a phospholipid fatty acid, where we're looking at biological communities in that soil profile. That's only a snapshot in time. If it's a sunny, warm day, you're going to get a different reading than maybe if it's a, a cloudy, cool day or if the soil's wet or versus dry. You know, um, we often try to shoot bullseyes with soil samples. Mm. And typically we can hit bullseyes, but we might be hitting the wrong target. You know, we're aiming at one target. We're hitting bullseyes there. Uh, and we're we're trying to hit bullseyes there, but we're hitting it on a different target that's two feet away. Mm-hmm. But in in essence, we're just trying to paint a really pretty picture on a map on a on a uh, from a soil test lab looking at phosphorus, potassium, whatever else. Uh, you know, phosphorus is pretty immobile in that soil solution, uh, and, and it takes microbes to make those available. Potassium's fairly water soluble. I mean, in crop residues, every time it rains you can get a flush of potassium back out. And when we look at like cover crops and uh, trying to determine how much fertilizer we really need to apply for like a cash crop, what I like to do is like every 30 days, go out and take this biomass sample after we've terminated a cover crop um, just to see what's been mineralized back out. And typically within 60 days, uh, almost 80 plus percent of the potassium is back out into that soil profile. So if you couple all these things together, uh, plant tissue testing, soil testing, biomass sampling, whatever, we can kind of start to identify kind of how these things all work together a little bit, but it's all just a snapshot in time. Uh, a lot of times it's like looking in the rear view mirror uh, instead of looking at the windshield. Mm-hmm. You know, there's a reason that the rear view mirror is only a, like 3% of your windshield. <laughs> And the windshield's so much bigger because if we spend our whole time looking in the rearview mirror, we're going to crash. So we've got to be looking forward and where we're going or what we're going to do. Mm. Yeah, well, it just came from ranching for profit, where they're they're teaching you how to plan to make a profit, <laughs> and and that's yeah. the same illustration they use. Uh, is we want to you know we we do want to see what happened, but we want to focus on what's ahead and and make a plan uh, that way. So. Um, what is the benefit then of the tissue sap, sap soil samples that we are we are taking? What are how how do we use that information to inform future decisions? Um, so a lot of it has to do with like well, another one, especially okay. Let's let's talk about it in a grazing situation. So another test we need to focus on is uh, measuring bricks. So when we're measuring bricks with a refractometer, we're measuring the 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 dissolved solubles in that plant. But in essence, we're measuring the sugar of that plant sap. And that's, that gets pretty difficult in some arid regions. Uh, you know, when you're, you're dealing with maybe a little bit more oxidized grasses uh, and forages than what you are, you know, 
you know, uh, east of the 100th meridian uh, where you get more moisture. But when we measure bricks, as we can see kind of where we are. If we're sitting at like a single digit number and we look at how we're managing our, our livestock and grazing, and if we measure that, you know, at the same time, same places on what those animals are actually consuming, we can really determine, you know, if we're seeing this bricks level rise, are we going to start seeing a gain in our livestock production as well? And, and that's a huge thing. You know, I was uh, on an operation in Southern Illinois and, and recently, and a year ago, uh, I guess then two years ago, uh, the bricks on the, the grasses were about six. And they averaged, you know, the, the calves that were gra grazing only averaged about a half pound a day, which, which, which is about right for that bricks level. This last year, the bricks was up to 12. And they're gaining just a little over a pound of that. Hmm. So as we're looking at how we graze, how we manage our, our livestock on these soils and looking at, you know, how much, uh, how much we're taking, uh, what the forage quality is, you know, we, we can start to see this return on basically a profitability index of hey, more pounds of gain that we put on per, per acre, the more profitable we are the value of these of these samples and tests is to kind of have a year by year uh, snapshot in time you know and if we can do them as close to the same time or even even season by season snapshot in time from one year to the next uh, and if we can do them as close to the same time as they were done last year we kind of get that consistent frame of reference what differences are managing management making um, in the quality of the nutrients uh, being produced by this landscape is that is that a good summary? Yeah, yeah I mean, absolutely. Uh, you know, and even taking some, you know, we talk about biomass samples and, and with that, you know, treating it like a, a cover crop or something and looking at the nutrients that are in there as far as NP and K, you could also take it as a feed analysis and look at, see if we're increasing our feed value on uh, those forages as well. Right. You know, and send it off to a lab. But yeah, we need to start really taking some, uh, good notes and, and uh, recording when we take things, what the weather's been like, uh, mm. you know, record rainfall events, temperature, all of this stuff will help to understand, you know, hey, if, if something happened this year that was really good, and then I, I tried to do the same thing this next year, but Mother Nature dealt me a different different uh, card deck, you know, in my hand, and, and I I'm trying to man manage it the same as I did the year before, but things aren't working out. We need to understand, you know, why those things are happening. And we need to be very flexible and adaptive on, on how we change our management based on that too. It cannot be a prescriptive approach. And unfortunately mm -hmm. too many guys are looking for a prescriptive approach. They want the answers. They want the silver bullets. And, you know, uh, there's really only one silver bullet in agriculture that I find in, in many guys' refrigerators of Coors Light. <laughs> yeah, and yeah, I think the silver bullet is management. You know, honestly, it's yeah. that's that's what it is. And and we, I, like I said, I just came from ranching for profit last week, and you know, he he 
Dallas made a paint point of over and over saying, um, you know, we're not here to give you a prescription. You know, if you leave here thinking they said stop feeding hay, start calving in May and June, uh, you know, stop applying chemical fertilizer to your to your ground, you know, you, you miss the point. We're talking about management here. And really, right. that's, that's what you have at your disposable, disposal is management. And I think that people that get into the regen ag movement, people that adopt holistic management, people that adopt uh, the ranching for profit model of cell grazing and, and those tools that they're teaching you. And they think, well, I've got to do it this way. I've got to, you know, like I said, Kevin, May and June, that's because they're just trading their agronomist's prescription for holistic management, pr- holistic management's prescription. And that is probably going to hopefully do better. Uh, but it could be you're still out of sync with nature. You're still, you know, pu- pushing that ball up the hill. So I think, I think that we need to start seeing ourselves more as people who are adaptively managing, you know, kind of like what you're saying, rather than people who are following a prescription given to us by whatever guru it is that we're, that we're uh, following at this point. Absolutely. You know, that's, I cannot stress that enough. If, you know, a lot of guys go to these conferences and everything and they watch YouTube videos and, and they're all on Facebook or, or social media and they're seeing what everybody else is doing. And so, you know, without understanding that person's goals in their environment with what they're doing, they, they just take bits and pieces of it and they adopt it onto theirs. They want to get the same res- results as what somebody else is doing on their, their uh, landscapes. And so they adopt them onto their farm without having an understanding of their own goals and it crashes. And it's all about adapting, uh, you know, all of these, you know, practices onto an operation. You've got, I always tell guys, there's, there's principles, practices, and products. Mm. Principles are the same, no matter where mm. you are, mm-hmm. no matter what the rainfall environment is, no matter how much sunshine you get or whatever. Principles are principles, you know, uh, practices are very flexible. They're going to change no matter where you are, depending on what your goals are. And then products are simply something that's manufactured that somebody's trying to sell you to make a buck <laughs> off you. Yeah. And, and, and I don't want to, <laughs> I don't want to step on any toes here, but the more I start to look at products and no matter what sector, I'm not talking just agriculture, it seems like a lot of those products are uh, developed to be a self-licking ice cream cone where the more you use them, the more you need them. And uh, yeah. it's a, uh, yeah, kind of, kind of makes me wonder a little bit. <laughs> yeah, absolutely. So uh, we've covered the law of the maximum, the law of the minimum. Uh, did we did we sufficiently cover the law of the return? I think we did early on. Yeah. Yep. Okay. A um, couple of things that I I just wanted to uh, kind of call attention to here uh, as we as we wrap up and make sure I'm understanding correctly. Twenty five percent air, twenty five percent water, forty five percent mineral, and five percent organic matter. Is that the ratios you you gave? Correct. Yep. So that is interesting to me because everybody talks about, and, and then my new favorite way to talk about it is uh, 1% increase in organic matter uh, gives you one inch per acre more of water holding capacity. We always talk about 25,000 gallons or whatever the number is, but that one inch more per acre of water holding capacity seems like a pretty good, uh, pretty, pretty uh, 
easy to understand uh, concept. So uh, it's interesting to me that it's it's by far the smallest, you know, nearly orders Absolutely. of magnitude smaller than all the rest of the of the you know elements in that soil structure, and yet it's it's got that much of a of a impact when it's when we are managing those relationships well. Absolutely, and that, like I said, you know that that. Uh, pore space at uh, the openings of this or the airspace of that soil and then the the moisture content those, those are completely interchangeable so you know for instance i've got a farmer who's has two fields side by side basically just road splits them and he has one field that's had really good cover crops for three years in a row the only the other one only had uh, one good year of cover crops and when we we're looking at his fields here about a month ago with the penetrometer and the field with three years of good cover crops, you know, building you know, 4,000 plus pounds of biomass uh, and laying it on the syrup soil surface, uh, actually more than that, uh, closer to four tons, I guess. So 8,000 8, pounds laying that on mm. the soil surface. Uh, we were able to find that 200 layer at six inches deep within three years. So go across the road with only one year out of three that's had really good cover crops due to weather events or whatever and that 200 psi is at two inches hmm. so in essence if you're looking at that you know four inch difference there we're able to store a lot more wow. soil moisture deeper into that soil profile that's going to save us when we get into those drier events very good um and then the other thing that i i heard you say earlier you mentioned the nodules on the legumes is the, are those the the pink nodules that we see on the legumes right yep the pink, the white, just depends on the legume, what color they are. Uh, when you break them open, they should be very fleshy colored. But if they're, uh, you know, typically if they're brown, they're, they're done shut off or there's no activity in them. Uh, but they can sometimes be a green color as well. But uh, we'd primarily look at them as a uh, pink type fleshy color on the inside. Okay. And um, I think that's about all the notes that I wanted to go back and review. Uh, today's episode, workingcows.net slash 176 will be the show notes page for today. I will verify with uh, David that I've got the right, uh, that I've got the right uh, Mulder's chart pulled up here, but uh, we'll have a, a, a link there to that Mulder's chart or a, a picture of it. So you can look at what he was mentioning there. Um, any other, any other links? Um, did you say regen ag labs? Was that a place that does some soil testing or some, some sample testing? Yeah. Regen ag labs, uh, in Kearney, just North of Kearney, Pleasanton, Nebraska, uh, is a good one to use. Uh, you know, I, I've used them quite a bit. Uh, I was trying to think of another, you know, anybody that's looking into sap test, uh, New Age Labs in New Haven, Michigan. Um, they're a place that does a lot of sap testing in the U.S. now. And uh, any other links? Um, I, I, I suppose the default link when I talk to David or anybody from Understanding Ag is the uh, upcoming uh, Academy Schools link for the Soil Health Academy. Anything else you'd like me to put up there at workingcows.net slash 176? Um, no, I, you know, with the Soil Health Academy, uh, we did introduce something new this year. It's a Regen Ag 101 course um, where it's just a bunch of short 10, 15 minute videos uh, talking about 
you know, uh, at a very one-on-one, easy to understand. Uh, you can watch them at your own leisure in your own living room or wherever uh, without having to actually attend a course. So it's kind of a prerequisite before actually attending a course. So then when we go and we have these uh, academies on different farms and ranches, we could go in at a much deeper level right off the bat without having to go through so much uh, of kind of the basic stuff. Yeah, very good. Yeah, I'm looking at it now, and there'll be there will be a link to that as well at workingcows.net slash 176. Um I think we've covered it today, uh, you know, at least skim the surface. Uh, of course, mentioned quite frequently the uh, the wealth of relationships that are going on underneath our feet all the time and, and the fact that we're not going to understand them all uh, immediately, but that we can we can kind of get a, a good picture at, at a point in time, a snapshot at a point in time, and see how our management is impacting some of those things and hopefully make a more informed decision uh, from there. Yep, sounds great. So, uh, David, thank you for your time today. Yes, sir. Thank you. Very good opportunity there with David. And we went on to record some bonus content uh, talking about the six principles of soil health and uh, the three rules of adapted steward, adaptive stewardship. Um, I really appreciate that. So if you want access to that bonus content, workingcows.net slash support or patreon.com slash workingcows, you can find access to that in both of those places. And uh, we did call a bit of an audible this week. It was supposed to be Daniel Griffiths, but there was too much demand on the soft launch of his book for Amazon to handle, which is good news. Uh, But that means we're going to push back our episode with Daniel Griffiths until March 1st, March 1st, when uh, Amazon will have their poop in a group and be ready for uh, the the demand that is there for uh, David uh, Daniel's book. Uh, wildlife flowers. So next week, a uh, live recorded episode that I did at the Black Hills Stock Show with Ken Charforis of the Wall Meats Company. And we talked about the importance of local meat processing and some of his, his vision for uh, scaling up local meat processing as it relates to our area and also uh, his vision for helping other people um, do more Uh, get trained up to do more local meat processing in their own areas. So pretty cool opportunity. Really appreciate all of the the gear that's come in to the Working Cows podcast through the Amazon wish list. Um, I wouldn't be able to do the the podcast at the level I do. I wouldn't be able to produce live episodes at the quality level that I do without uh, that um, great, great equipment that has been sent to me uh, throughout the years. And so there's there's more stuff always being added to the Amazon wish list. There will be a link to that in the show notes page for today, workingcows.net slash 176. Check that out if you want. Also check out all of the links to Soil Health Academy and what Understanding Ag has going on. And we'll be back next week with episode 177 of the Working Cows podcast, talking local meat processing with Ken Charforis of Wall Meats. We'll see you then. We invite you to visit workingcows.net to subscribe to the show via iTunes or Stitcher. You'll also find detailed show notes pages, resources from our guests, and the industry leaders who have influenced them. For more ideas on putting your cows to work for you in a more profitable way, tune in next week.